All right, everybody, let me um, begin the second part of tonight's uh, event. It's customary at these um, prize givings to combine them with a public lecture. In the past, we've had as our lecturer Gillian Tett from the Financial Times, David Spiegelhalter last year from the University of Cambridge, um, and this year we're delighted to have as our um, speaker Ed Conway. Ed is the economics editor of Sky News and author of The Summit, the biggest battle of the Second World War fought behind closed doors. Before joining Sky, Ed was economics editor of the Daily Telegraph and the Sunday Telegraph, where he, also, where he was also an op-ed columnist. During the early stages of the financial crisis, he was the first to, reveal, first to reveal the Bank of England's plans to create money through quantitative easing and to warn of the funding gap in the banking system, which later led to the collapse of Northern Rock. He won a number of awards. Ed was educated at Pembroke College in somewhere called Oxford and uh, the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, where he was a Fulbright Scholar. Um, Ed is going to talk tonight about his new book, The Summit, The Biggest Battle of the Second World War Fought Behind Closed Doors, which will be available um, after the lecture for purchase and signing, if, if you wish. It's appropriate that we have Ed as a, as, as a slight shift in the style of the previous um, uh, public lectures for LSE 100, reflecting the different unit composition of LSE 100 itself, different approaches to evidence, different issues that are discussed in the programme. We have alongside discussing the, the causes of the financial crisis on which you know, Gillian Tett was, a, was a, a, an interesting contributor. We also have issues about the rise of, of the politics of the Cold War and its subsequent um, progress, history, particularly the history of um, recent contemporary political events is an important element in the way in which we also study social sciences broadly conceived. And if you're going to talk about a history that's relevant to the things that are concerned, that the LSE is concerned with, there's, there's probably, well, I mean, all of history is important, but the unique events captured in, in, in Ed's book around the um, the uh, the Bretton Woods conference, the politics of it, and its significance could hardly be um, could hardly be more important um, for tonight's audience. So, with um, without more um, ado, can I um, ask you to welcome Ed Conway tonight, speaker uh, for the LSE 100 public lecture. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm incredibly flattered to, to be here uh, tonight, and um, thank you for, for having me. Congratulations uh, to all who have won awards. Uh, what a remarkable achievement, particularly given how interesting this course is and how it straddles so many different boundaries and goes uh, throughout uh, the whole of the, uh, the year. So congratulations. Um, I, I've always, obviously, the first thing you do when you get asked to, to give a lecture is you look at who else has, has given speeches uh, and work out just how intimidating it's going to be. And this one kind of went off the, the kind of Richter scale of intimidation when I saw who had spoken here. Um, and, now, and now I, uh, you know, a mere hack, uh, I'm here. Not even, not even F, an FT hack, uh, a Sky News hack is here. So, so I feel, you know, rather proud about that. And, and an Oxford graduate, yeah. you know, all of these things that are totally unacceptable. Uh, somehow have happened, so I'm very pleased about that. Um, uh, I'm also kind of very pleased to be talking, particularly given this is the LSE, uh, because I, I spent uh, many hours, I think like many of you, spent many hours in the library uh, here at the LSE um, when I was working on this book. It was one of the few libraries I could find that would remain open late into the night uh, in London. Uh, very difficult to find a place to work sometimes, I found. Um, and, and I could never quite master the, the, the spiral staircase that seems to kind of, you get kind of incredibly exhausted when you're trying to do those long steps up it. So uh, I have gone through those things as well and suffered. Um, and it, it's quite significant, I think, um, the subject I'm talking about today uh, because of um, 
Lionel Robbins, who was one of the key figures at Bretton Woods and, of course, was one of the key figures uh, from this esteemed establishment. Uh, in fact, his, his archives uh, provided some of the, the most interesting material that I used uh, throughout this, uh, uh, this book. And, and, and finally, I suppose, in terms of the other reasons I'm excited, the LSE 100 course, I think, is, I think is a fantastic, uh, fantastic course, a fantastic initiative. I mean, if there is one thing the financial crisis taught us, uh, it's that however brilliant you might be at one particular kind of granular part uh, of the corpus, um, at certain points you do need to take a step back and uh, look at the bigger picture. And, and really, if there's, if there's one person who certainly knew that more than uh, many other people in the past century, it was John Maynard Keynes. Now, I know he's kind of an enemy of this establishment as well. Or have we, we've, kind we've, of, we've made peace with him. But it, as, as, as a character, as a kind of polymath of the, the 20th century, it's hard to think of anyone else who straddled so many different uh, areas. Of course, yeah, he was one of the world's most influential economists, but he was also a lot more. He was a student of politics. Uh, he was an obsessive about science, uh, particularly the works of Isaac Newton, uh, and he was a friend of Einstein. He loved the ballet. His wife, Lydia Lopakova, who you will meet in my guided tour of Keynes and the Summit in Bretton Woods, uh, she was one of the world's most famous ballerinas. Uh, he was a part of the Bloomsbury set. He was friends with Virginia Woolf and E.M. Forster. He was an active financial investor and a journalist, and all of these things in one, uh, as well as being perhaps the most brilliant mind of his generation, and he's helped set up the Arts Council, uh, and for that matter, the Royal Opera House. Um, most interestingly of all, uh, as far as I'm concerned, he was also one of those kind of rare economists and academics who actually kind of went out there and implemented policy. So he went and did stuff, and that's really what I wanted to, uh, to talk about tonight. Uh, let me see if this is working. There we are. I slightly changed the title just because that's just the title of my book. So I thought I'd kind of mod, you know, bring it on a little bit. And I've literally just come from reporting today about markets kind of crashing, people concerned about what's going on in the global economy. Uh, and so I've tried to add on a little bit of contemporary relevance uh, as well. But some of this, a lot of this, is about an event that happened 70 years ago uh, in 1944, the Bretton Woods Conference. And it might seem a little kind of distant, dim and irrelevant, but I want to show you why it's not. I want to show you why so much of what we're going through today, um, what we've experienced in the past few years, is in some way a repeat of many of the same struggles that did happen before. And if you spend a bit of time considering the history, you can understand a bit more about what is going to happen next, potentially, and what might be done now to try to improve our lot in the world. Um, I just came back, actually, this weekend. I came back uh, from a week in Washington. It was the IMF's, and the IMF is one of the institutions that was set up 70 years ago at Bretton Woods. I came back from this weekend where supposedly these uh, um, international titans uh, at the IMF and World Bank uh, were going to talk about all of these issues that are on the agenda at the moment. Ebola, levels of inequality around the world, uh, the problem of banks that remain too big to fail, uh, to name just three. But overshadowing all of it um, was this bigger worry, and the worry was, and it's the worry that's kind of weighing on markets at the moment, is that Europe is heading back towards an economic crisis, that it's not the kind of existential crisis we saw over the course of the last kind of three or four years, but this is something where people are worried not about countries leaving the euro, but just a chronic growth issue, um, whereby parts of the continent are kind of remaining in recession, even apparently strong countries like Germany, uh, they are feeling the pinch, they may be on the brink of recession, and that has knock-on effects. The IMF think that there's a 40% chance of a recession in the eurozone, uh, and that in turn could cause a global economic slowdown. Uh, after all, in simple dollar uh, GDP terms, the European Union is still just about... Uh, the biggest economy in the world. That's in dollar terms, not PPP terms. Uh, a lot of focus on whether China is going to make that uh, kind of transition to being the biggest economy at the moment. But Europe is still relatively important, lest we forget, and these are big concerns for everyone. So as I sat there in Washington, kind of hoping that there might be some degree of clarity over what could be done next, or that some of these institutions could actually decide what they were going to do how are we going to arrest the possible decline of, of, of Europe back into to recession? These people were just talking to each other, making speeches, not really listening to each other, berating each other for the most part. And it, it very quickly became clear that no one really had an idea of what to do next. 
slightly disturbing. And if anyone did, it's almost certain that they wouldn't actually be listened to. And the problem is that, put quite bluntly, the international decision-making system isn't working properly. Now, that would be quite depressing were it not for the fact that we know it could be working better, and this lecture is about one moment in history where it did seem to work pretty well, and that's Bretton Woods, um, the summit. And I personally came to this subject uh, a few years ago, and it was kind of in the teeth of the crisis. Uh, obviously, as a journalist reporting on this kind of stuff day by day, markets collapsing, the euro in crisis, uh, a lot of people concerned that we're facing another kind of Great Depression. Um, and I started thinking about why was the international monetary system, just the, the set of rules that decide how different countries and their currencies and their capital markets fit together, why was this not really working properly? And it, it struck me that a lot of the kind of economic and financial forces that led to the nightmare of the past few years was in some way uh, began at a particular point in time. Uh, I'm starting with the kind of graphs because I figured this is the LSE, so you start with graphs. Uh, but there are pictures to come, so fear not. Um, this is a chart just showing the size of the banking sector um, in the UK. Uh, bank assets as a percentage of GDP. And you can see 1880 it starts at, and it basically is the same story all the way through till about... 1970, and then look at what happened next. A lot of that uh, will be RBS, or was RBS. Um, you can see it, but just note the date. Just take, take note of those days. It's about the kind of late 60s, um, the early 70s. I'm going to show you the equivalent in the US. In the US, you can see actually there was far more of a, of a kind of increase in terms of the size of balance sheets just before 1929, uh, the crash, but then came down and then gradually kind of became high. It's not quite as accentuated as it looks in, in the UK, but nonetheless, there's a, an increase that certainly accelerates after you get past about 1970 there as well. Same story when it comes to banks' return on equity, so kind of a measure of profitability. 1921 to 1971, you've got about 7% return on equity. 71 to 2006, suddenly these banks are making 20.4% in terms of their return on equity. So banks are becoming a lot more profitable uh, when compared with their equity. Um, it's a similar story as well, actually. I have another chart on inequality. This is not a Thomas Piketty chart, I'm afraid to say, but it, it is, this is uh, an OECD chart showing you basically the share of total income that the top 1% have. So it's the 1%. And you can see, again, like, so in the kind of Edwardian period, there is quite a big chunk uh, of people who, you know, the 1% are earning quite a big chunk. But that kind of diminishes all the way through here. And you can see from about kind of, you know, 45 through till the early 80s, the kind of late 70s, early 80s, it's quite low, and then it starts to come up after that. You'll notice that like, there's this trend where things are starting to kind of change uh, after the 1970s. And I was thinking, well, that, that all seems rather interesting that it all kind of fits together like that. Could there be a connection, perchance? Uh, and the final, the final chart uh, I'm going to show you, it, this is kind of the mother of all charts when it comes to the topic I'm talking about, the international monetary system. This is current account imbalances. Uh, the, I mean, these are the, the statistics that really kind of fueled the crisis. Uh, you'll be familiar with kind of one of the explanations uh, for the crisis, that there were massive build-ups of debt and savings in different countries. And these build-ups eventually flowed into capital markets. Uh, savings flew into the subprime market. And then we were left, well, where we were um, in the last few years. And you can see, essentially, these lines just represent current accounts, surpluses, and deficits in various different countries. Uh, I haven't got the key, annoyingly, but I mean, for instance, these are deficits, and that's the UK uh, and the US there. And you can see China and Germany at the top with big surpluses. And generally speaking, note the big kind of, you know, variance there. Note the big variance there during the gold standard just before we had the kind of Great Depression, the interwar period. And note this bit here. This is Bretton Woods. And so what you have here is essentially, in kind of one chart, the story of different international monetary systems over the course uh, of the last century and a bit. The gold standard, the agreement whereby people were going to kind of tie their currencies together and tie them to gold. The interwar period, where things were essentially falling apart. We don't have that much data on that, as you can see. Bretton Woods, things seem to be a lot more suppressed. There don't seem to be as big imbalances between different countries uh, as thereafter. And then there's what happened recently. And that's, this is kind of you know, when the crash took place. Um, and you know, the, the, there is plenty of theory that suggests that these kind of imbalances are the kind of thing that lead to crises. Um, 
It's the same story, by the way. So I was obviously, when I saw charts like this, I thought, well, hang on. You know, what, what was so good about this? And it's the Bretton Woods story that I've kind of you know, become more and more obsessed by. It's the same story, actually, if you look, if you look at numbers. I'm going to get to the pictures in a bit. I do promise about that. Um, if, if you look at other numbers, you can see different, different periods in, in global history here. The gold standard, the interwar period, Bretton Woods, and currently... Uh, and just look at the growth. Growth was stronger during the Bretton Woods period than any of these other individual periods. Just, that's just world GDP, average growth. Uh, inflation a bit higher, but again lower than it was in the post-Bretton Woods period. Certainly it was very low around the gold standard because everything was tied to gold and therefore you didn't have much in the way of inflation. In fact, you had a lot of deflation in some countries. Uh, which was part of the problem. We won't get into that. Um, but then, uh, national downturns. Number of national downturns, so recessions uh, in these different periods of time. Again, the gold standard, the interwar period, the Bretton Woods, and currently, just look at Bretton Woods again. Fewer national downturns uh, than in any of these other periods, so fewer in the way of recessions. And banking crises. Again, I think this is kind of quite a significant thing. A lot of the time when people look at international monetary systems and history, they tend to focus a bit more on the monetary side of it, the economics of it, rather than looking at the banking system, the financial side of it. But of course, they are totally kind of intertwined. Uh, and again, it's just very striking here. Essentially, you had next to no banking crises during Bretton Woods, where you had, well, a whole lot of them before and since. And note, actually, these numbers don't take into account anything post-2008. So you can assume that those numbers are going to look a lot worse for the more recent period if you add on uh, 2008 as well. Do I have one more of these? Yes, I'm afraid I do, sorry. Um, so this one just shows you kind of number of external defaults, so foreign defaults. Again, it's a similar story. Bretton Woods is, is, is pretty good on that front, but actually better than any of the other periods. Uh, current account imbalances, well, you saw that chart. It basically shows the same thing. There weren't as many imbalances. So all of this kind of obviously uh, got me thinking, well... What went on there? What actually happened there? And why was it, in, you know, from these kind of metrics, quite so successful? What was it about this period that, that worked so well? Well, the short answer. Uh, Bretton Woods was a conference that was held in the summer of 1944. Uh, at this conference, the Allied countries agreed, amongst other things, that in future, rather than tying their currencies to gold as they did under the gold standard, uh, they were going to tie their currencies to the dollar. Uh, and the dollar was going to be tied in turn to gold. Uh, the idea that was, going to, was there was going to be more flexibility uh, in the system. They were going to be allowed to control their own interest rates, uh, but they'd have to impose controls uh, on the amount of capital flowing in and out of their country, so capital controls. And as you've seen from all of these tables, as economic uh, systems go, it presided over this remarkable period of growth, financial stability for the world economy, and of course... This was also the moment, uh, from a kind of geopolitical point of view, that the US currency officially, officially became the centrepiece of the world's monetary system. So that kind of, in a nutshell, uh, is what Bretton Woods was all about. But when I spent a bit of time kind of looking into things, um, there's a widely accepted version of the story, uh, the conference stories, which you'll find in many textbooks. Um, but it suffers from a number of misconceptions. And I'm, what I'm going to do is just take you through a few of those misconceptions <laughs> Um, and uh, talk about the implications of those. So, first of all, a lot of people forget that this conference happened with the war very much still raging. I mean, D-Day uh, was happening pretty much at the same time. In fact, when the British delegation went out to, to Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, they uh, had their journey there uh, delayed because they weren't allowed to set off because there was a travel ban in place because of D-Day. Uh, Keynes actually tried to get it overturned uh, and, and I think succeeded in going out a little bit earlier. Obviously sent letters to the right people, which he always was very good at. Uh, the time was, was going the Allies' way. Uh, the landings had been successful by the time the conference started, but it didn't feel entirely, totally inevitable uh, that victory was going to be there anytime soon. Another reason for that uh, is this. this. This is one of the V1 uh, bomb attacks in London. The very week that some of the delegates set out uh, from London to Bretton Woods, Bretton Woods being this uh, um, uh, area of New Hampshire, miles from anywhere in, in the US, um, the very week that they set out, uh, it was the same week that these bombs first started falling on London. Many people described it as being like a second blitz. Um, why is the war important for this story? Well, 
For one thing, it meant even more repair work was left to be done on the international economic system. Currencies had to be re-established in occupied countries. It also meant that most people's attention... And by the way, that means... You know, so there was, there was a bit more of a clean slate here. Um, there was scorched earth that could be built upon. It also meant that most people's attention was elsewhere. People were far more concerned about this than about a discussion about international monetary systems. Uh, weirdly, who would have thought? Um, it also meant that... Um, as a result, the economists could actually do a lot of their work underneath the radar um, and off the front pages. But most importantly of all, the wall was a first-hand reminder of what happens when economic repair work goes wrong, or actually doesn't happen at all. So economists living in the 1940s at this stage, they knew this, they kind of felt this viscerally uh, in their bones because they had lived through it. They had experienced... The Depression uh, in the 1930s. They'd lived through hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic. That, this is a, a kite made out of, uh, out of currency. Um, another illustration of what happened. The, the wheelbarrows of cash are the, 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 the famous ones, but I quite like the kite uh, as, a, as another illustration of that. Uh, more fun. Um, the, the problem was... Many of the people, they'd experienced this, the economists had kind of lived through this, and they blamed these problems on the lack of a proper settlement after the First World War. Um, so during the First World War, the gold standard had collapsed. It had never really been put back together properly, um, and it was largely that monetary mess alongside the mess of the Versailles Treaty, reparations and all that, uh, that had contributed to the Depression, the rise of extremism uh, and Nazism in Europe, and hence World War II. So there's a chain there that says, if you make mistakes with the economics, if you don't sort out the economic system, there will be World War III. Um, and this is one of the um, uh, cartoons in, in a bit of documentation that was published alongside the Bretton Woods Agreement. Essentially, a lot of people weren't that fond of bankers. I mean, le plus ça change. Um, and there was this kind of association between the bankers wanting to create another war because it was going to be lucrative for them. I mean, it's essentially propaganda, but nonetheless, there was this feeling that money and war were interlinked. And if you wanted to avoid another war, you had to try and sort out the monetary system uh, in the future. Now, few out there um, had more kind of experience and had lived through this as viscerally uh, as these two. Uh, on the left, uh, actually, can anyone identify this person? He's, he's, he's of course, the great enemy of uh, the LSE, but apparently not anymore. That's, that's John Maynard Keynes, uh, and this is Harry Dexter White, uh, his American counterpart. And a lot of this kind of story is about the relationship between the two of them. Keynes, of course, was a man who wrote the definitive book uh, about the disastrous settlement following the First World War, The Economic Consequences of the Peace. An amazing book, actually, quite short and well worth a read. Uh, he was a great writer, actually. I was, that's why I was really struck by is how much of a writer he was. Uh, but probably me, I'm partial as a journalist and see that as the most important thing. Uh, also a very good economist. Um, widely regarded as the man who foresaw all of what happened. So he had kind of said... Uh, this disastrous settlement will lead to another war. Uh, and that's how he became famous. And he really was world famous. He was a genuine celebrity. When he turned up at places, newspaper paparazzi would be there. Amazing as it sounds for an economist uh, to be chased by paparazzi. It did happen uh, once. Um, <laughs> he, uh, Harry Dexter White, okay, who's uh, on the left-hand side here, he was a man who had lived through the Depression. He spent much of the early part of his life uh, working in settlement houses. These are kind of um, uh, refuges for the poor in pre-welfare state America. Um, and he trained as an economist during the Depression. In fact, he was at least partially influenced by Keynes uh, in terms of Keynes's ideas, uh, which I'm sure you'll all be familiar with, about needing the government needing to get involved, needing to spend in order to try and pull countries uh, out of recession. Now, it was these two men who were chosen to try to come up with a better solution. Uh, these are the men who uh, had been talking for a number of years before the actual conference about, listen, how do we sort this out? What do we create in order uh, to go in the place of the mess that was left before? And to start off with, it's not entirely evident here. I mean, perhaps it is. There's something slightly demonic about Keynes's look here. They really didn't like each other. They hated each other. 
uh, to start off with. There was a big kind of clash of, of personalities. Their backgrounds were almost diametrically opposite. Uh, Keynes was from this privileged uh, imperial British family, sent to Eton and Cambridge, um, inculcated from quite early on in life to believe that he could kind of have anything he wants, achieve anything he wanted. White was the absolute inverse. He was literally, physically, short and stocky where Keynes was tall. Uh, he was about five foot six or seven. Keynes was about six foot six. Um, he was uh, Jewish where Keynes was a little bit anti-Semitic. Self-made where Keynes had it all. Um, Keynes had refused to fight in the, in the Great War. Wyatt had signed up at the first possible opportunity. So you can see there's a lot of kind of cultural differences uh, there. And the standard version of this story, if you might, might have come across it before, um, is that they had radically, radically different views of how they wanted the post-war economy to look. And there is some truth, at least, to this. Um, Keynes's solution, it involved an international currency, a bank or he wanted this international currency in the middle of things, a system of rules that would ensure that countries with current account surpluses uh, would, not, would, sorry, would be penalised, and not just those with deficits. Now, he wanted a genuine global central bank through which international monetary transactions could pass, levying charges on countries with excessive imbalances. As we all know... This was in no small part influenced by the fact that Britain, which was once one of the world's great creditor nations, so it was a saver, it had lots of money, had ceded that position to the United States some decades earlier. So no surprise that Keynes wanted to penalise those creditors um, and you know, let the debtors off a little bit more, because uh, that was quite right. Um, now, White's conception, again, unsurprisingly, was rather different. Uh, he wanted a stabilisation fund in the middle of the global economy. So, again, not, you know, not dissimilar. Um, but its job was less to sit at the apex of all of the international transactions than to kind of step in like a referee when things started to kind of go wrong. Um, it was like an emergency room, whereas Keynes thought of it more as a kind of health salon that people would dip in and out of. And crucially... Um, his version, White's version, would not, surprisingly, penalise creditor nations, e.g. brackets, the US. Um, nominally, at least, debtors were the ones who were going to have to pay the price when their economies got into trouble. Uh, underlying this, though, so you have a parallel struggle uh, between these two people. Britain, obviously, at this stage, no longer the world's undisputed economic superpower. That much was pretty obvious uh, in the interwar period. It was clear to everyone around the table up at Bretton Woods uh, that what would happen there would formalise the US role as the world's undisputed economic power. So this was a real turning point, and I think everyone was quite conscious of that um, at this meeting. Um, but it's often forgotten, actually, that in reality, the two did have a bit more in common uh, than is sometimes made out. So consider this. Um, this is... It, it animates, and I'm, I'm really not comfortable with the animation, so I, I apologise for that. I, I, I borrowed this off of a professor, Danny Roderick, of, of uh, Harvard, who taught me about this stuff. Um, this basically shows you the um, constraints. If you are a policymaker and want to have an international monetary system, you can choose, there we are, pick two, any two of these things. In an ideal world, you might want to have all of them. You might want to have fixed exchange rates. You might want to have capital mobility coming in and out of your country, and you might want to be able to control your own interest rates. The problem is that you can't have all three at any one time. And this is what has been known as the trilemma or the impossible trinity. Uh, Robert Mundell, a Canadian economist, came up with the notion, and it seems to hold pretty well. And basically it says that during the gold standard, what you had, you had fixed exchange rates, you had a lot of capital mobility going around the world, money was really truly flying around the world, um, but in exchange, countries didn't have the opportunity to do their own independent monetary policy. You had to set interest rates basically based on how much gold you had uh, in your coffers. Uh, that was the gold standard. Didn't go very well. Um, Bretton Woods, well, let's do free-floating as well, because we're kind of in a world of vaguely free-floating right now. Some countries are, some countries aren't. Uh, we can talk about that later if you want. Um, but right now, we have a lot of capital mobility, we have independent monetary policy in the UK, and we don't have fixed exchange rates. So we're on that kind of free-floating side of things. But there are other countries, China, which is somewhere else within this, uh, this trinity. Um, but the key thing to remember here, what Keynes and White genuinely had in common is, you could have you gone in lots of different directions here, but they both decided upon this one, that you were going to give up capital mobility, so you're going to have capital controls... Uh, potentially permanently, Keynes was a bit more keen on that than White, but you'd have capital controls 
so no capital mobility, but you'd have fixed exchange rates, which they were still very keen on, um, and independent monetary policy. And that was Bretton Woods. And in the middle of it, the whole system, you would have something, some kind of a, an institution that would actually administer it. Um, and that, you know, that is a lot to have in common. At this stage, it wasn't necessarily uh, a given that everyone would have agreed on that. Um, now, um, they had been discussing these plans for a few years. At this stage, you know, they've been talking about it since, since kind of 1940, late 1941, 1942. Um, but finally, in uh, 1944, they realised that it might be about time to try and involve a few other people uh, and get them along. And in reality, they had actually consulted with a few other countries. But this um, meeting at Bretton Woods at the Mount Washington Hotel, this grand hotel here, uh, which is, it's, I think it was the biggest wooden structure in the world at the time that it was built. It's actually all made of wood. Uh, it's, it's rather magnificent, actually, if you, go, if you, if you ever fancy going on holiday uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, it, is rather, it is rather lovely. Um, and it's still, quite, it's still just about as grand uh, as it was back then. It's, kind of, it's had this sequence of disasters whereby it's almost gone bankrupt. In fact, it has gone bankrupt a few times since Bretton Woods. Uh, but they've just about managed to keep it going. Uh, and it's, it, it's rather nice now. But this is the hotel. Uh, where it all happened, where they needed, Harry, you know, if you think of Weiss and uh, Keynes, Britain and uh, the United States, essentially at the middle of this, what they needed was that their plans to be endorsed by all 44 allied nations. And so they invited them here to this hotel, and the atmosphere was cacophonous, to say the least. Uh, there were so many different factions battling with each other throughout these kind of 18-hour-long days in this building in the middle of nowhere um, that when one US newspaper editor was asked to describe it, uh, he said, it's a great spot for a murder. Uh, uh, Keynes, on the other hand, he, he called it a monstrous, a monstrous monkey house. Um, and he said that with so many people holed up together day and night, it was likely that acute alcohol poisoning would set in before the end. Um, uh, again, more on that in a bit. Um, let's not forget that a lot of these delegates were so desperate to come from all around the world to talk about the, this new settlement, about how the, the new world economy would fit together, uh, that they braved many uh, challenges. This, this chap here, the slightly more gaunt fellow, He's called Alexander Agriopoulos. He was one of the Greek delegation. Uh, and he arrived, this is him arriving in LaGuardia Airport in New York. Um, it was, um, he'd just escaped from a prisoner of war camp um, in Greece. And this was the first time that he'd seen his wife and daughter in four years. Um, war was ever present uh, in terms of the, the discourse here. A lot of people forget this. It's one of these kind of preconceptions and misconceptions that you find about the conference. People forget that this was really at the height of wartime. Uh, another one of the, the delegates, uh, um, an Indian uh, member of the delegation there, although he's actually British national. This was obviously, uh, India was, was, was part uh, of the British Empire at this stage. Um, Sir Theodore Gregory, he had to share his plane out to the conference from India uh, with a cargo of unexploded Japanese bombs. Uh, this is an economist. Uh, this is what they did. Um, Bob Brand, who was one of the English uh, team, he was on edge throughout the proceedings because his son, uh, Jim, was amongst the soldiers in Operation Overlord. So well, this stuff is kind of present. The site was guarded by soldiers. There's one of them there. Uh, and the very day... Uh, uh, well, I mentioned the arrival, actually, of the UK was kind of delayed as a result of D-Day. Um, in the parties and the drinks receptions around the hotel, the Russians and the British, they would exchange what they kind of called atrocity stories. And there was this odd kind of macho hierarchy whereby anyone whose country hadn't seen direct conflict wasn't taken quite as seriously. Um, and that meant, actually, there was a little bit of... There's kind of lots of bickering uh, between the US and the UK. This is, this is the head... Uh, of the U.S. Uh, Treasury, this is Treasury Secretary uh, Henry Morgenthau uh, Jr. and uh, John Maynard Keynes, and you can just see the body language is not particularly promising. <laughs> there, they weren't getting on all that well. They could stand each other. They really, actually, even more than Harry Dexter White, uh, Keynes really didn't like Morgenthau. I mean, Keynes did have a little bit of a propensity uh, to be slightly patronising, uh, particularly to Americans, because he, he that was just his way, and so the relationship there was strained to say the least. Um, 
There's, uh, I mean, the whole cast of characters who's worth just kind of quickly introducing you to. Uh, this is H.H. Um, H. Kung. He was the head of the Chinese delegation, one of the richest men in China at this stage. He'd made a lot on silver mines uh, and retail uh, and banking, I think, as well. Um, it's remarkable, actually, kind of thinking about him, about, at this stage, how central a role China played in the conference. Just looking back, it is remarkable, because... Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, was determined that they were going to be at the top table, even though he was going to be one of the big four, as he called them, even though their economy, in kind of terms of GDP, was far below um, all of the other major countries. Uh, in fact, it was actually patently smaller than France's economy, uh, which was a cause of deep annoyance uh, for this man, uh, Pierre Mendes France, who was representing France, uh, unsurprisingly. He was uh, genuinely a brilliant man. Um, he later became Prime Minister. But at this stage, he found himself in a pretty difficult situation because Charles de Gaulle had insisted to him uh, that he should not negotiate with the Americans at Bretton Woods at any cost. Do not negotiate. Uh, and so the country, and also on top of that, the country that his delegation was representing was still not recognised uh, as a sovereign state. Uh, they were obviously kind of under occupation. Um, and so the best that he could do is to kind of keep waving the French flag as often as possible. He spoke perfect English, um, but that, uh, he kind of insisted on trying to speak French in the sessions. Um, at one stage, actually, he, he attempted to get the entire Bretton Woods Articles of Agreement published in French as well as English uh, on what he called sentimental grounds. Um, <laughs> And given, it's funny, actually, given how much the French have come to dominate uh, international monetary uh, funds, obviously there's a French uh, managing director now, there have been many French uh, managing directors before, that they really just start at quite a low ebb, uh, shall we say. Um, on another occasion, actually, Mendes France became incredibly angry with one young American technician who'd drawn up the arrangement of the quotas. Um, the, those quotas were going to determine basically how much voting rights each country had, so everyone was very, very tense about how much they would have. Um, and uh, part of his problem was that other countries, like China, for instance, who we just saw, were going to have far bigger voting rights. Uh, and he looked at the numbers and thought, well, that doesn't seem to make sense. We are bigger than them, so why do we have smaller rights? So he kind of grabbed one of the technicians behind this uh, in one of the corridors, started screaming at him in a kind of, mix, in a kind of franglais uh, mixture of English and French. Um, and... It kind of underlines one of the arguments, and they actually had to be pulled apart. It underlines one of the arguments um, here. They, the arguments made at the conference themselves were mainly over the question of how big quotas were going to be. So how much voting right do you have as a country uh, at the IMF in the future? How much control are you going to have over the global economy, uh, in other words? Um, they weren't over the shape and structure of, you know, is it going to be bad for debtors, is it going to be bad for creditors? It was about that kind of thing. Um, it's ironic, given that today the IMF is right now trying to negotiate changes to its structure. Again, at the very core of it is the question of who is going to have how much quota rights, uh, and they still can't get it through. They've been trying to get this through for the last few years, uh, and they still are, are unable to do it. Um, let me whiz through a little bit. Corridors of power. This just shows you a few of the people. While, while everything was happening, a lot was actually discussed within the kind of corridors uh, of the hotel. And also, um, perhaps most importantly, by the way, this, this is Fred Vincent, who was the Deputy uh, Treasury Secretary on the left. This is Ned Brown, a kind of rather uh, um, uh, a big fellow, um, who was the only banker the only banker who was there at Bretton Woods. Uh, Roosevelt was desperate to ensure that the bankers basically wouldn't be able to control this thing because he was worried that they would try and destroy it. Um, now, a lot of the discussions happened in corridors. They happened, uh, well, this is, this is a late night uh, kind of drafting session. The, the, the nights went on until uh, extremely kind of early in the morning in order to get everything done. done. I, just, I love this photo just because this is Bretton Woods as it happened, essentially. Um, but... Also remember, this is after having had dinner and probably a few brandies at the bar. They would go up to, uh, uh, to the kind of drafting rooms. And they would still leave... One of, one of the, the, the late-night committees was, was chaired by a Canadian called Louis Rasminski, very famous Canadian central banker, actually. Um, uh, he was governor of the Bank of Canada afterwards. And he made sure... He was quite young at this stage. He made sure every evening to declare a 15-minute recess at 1.30am to, and I'm quoting here, enable the members of the drafting committee, including the chairman himself, to join the unofficial Commission 4 downstairs. They nicknamed uh, the Bar Commission 4. It's a long story, not particularly exciting. Um, 
to join the unofficial commission four downstairs in the moon room, which was the bar, and observe the titillating gyrations of Conchita, the Peruvian bombshell. Thus refreshed and reinvigorated, we were able to carry on with renewed vigour for another hour or more. That was how it happened at Bretton Woods. There was also behind the scenes, there, was, there, were, there were professional dancers who were brought there to kind of teach people how to, to dance. This is the Venezuelan delegate, very kindly helping repair the watch of the dance instructor. This is the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Mariner Eccles, one of the great heroes of the, the Depression, and also a fine golfer. He actually got the best score uh, on the course uh, that week. Um, he was, a, he was a Mormon. That was one of the uh, uh, interesting things. He, he had two wives, and I think something like 20 children. Um, Keynes found him to be very dull in meetings. And he said, at one stage, he sort of said, no wonder he's a Mormon. No single woman could stand him. <laughs> that, was, that was how Keynes kind of ingratiated himself with the Americans. It didn't work all that well, unfortunately. Um, now, there were a couple of twists that are worth just mentioning. Uh, Keynes had real heart issues. Uh, this is Keynes and his wife, Lydia. He was basically banned from going downstairs to the bar, but he was the key, you know, one of the influential figures, if not the most influential figure here. Halfway through, actually about two-thirds of the way through, he had a heart attack, he was carted off to his room, he was reported by Reuters as having died, so that on the, on the, it was on the front page of the newspapers uh, in Europe. Uh, funnily enough, on the same day as the von Stauffenberg Valkyrie uh, attack, uh, assassination attempt on Hitler, so you had this odd day where both Hitler and Keynes were reported as having died, and they both had just about survived. Uh, in Keynes's case, he, he never really properly survived from his heart defects, but he kept going here. Another quick twist, so the one twist, Keynes's health, another twist, the Americans and the Russians. Now, this, this person here you've seen before, that's Harry Dexter White. Okay, and this is where some of the American delegation. That's the Treasury Secretary. Uh, the Americans had a, a woman delegate here, Mabel Newcomer. She was called, um, and which was, was very unusual uh, for this time. And that was something that um, Eleanor Roosevelt was very keen on ensuring would be the case. Um, I want you to kind of look at this person here. That is someone. Actually, I've got the thing. That's someone called Nikolai Chechulin. That's Harry Dexter White there. It later transpired that Chechulin was an informant, an agent for the NKVD. That's the precursor to the KGB. So you had at Bretton Woods, while this was all happening, you had uh, a Soviet intelligence agent uh, there at Bretton Woods. There was evidence of Harry Dexter White, the head of the American delegation, the man whose plan this was, basically, passing information uh, illicitly to Chichulin and to the Russians. Uh, the story, well, it's, it's there in my book. Um, you can make up your own mind about it. Um, but a lot of people have looked at this and said, well, it was all part of a Russian conspiracy to try and destroy the world economy. That, that, that may very well be the case, although I don't really think it is. Um, but uh, there's a lot of intrigue over that <coughs> issue in particular. Now, how am I doing for time? About another oh, ten minutes. Ten minutes, okay, all right. Uh, there, I, I'm going to skip through, I think. There's, there's a little bit about how the dollar became the central part uh, of the world economy, uh, which I will skip through, but I can, I can pass these slides on, perhaps. Essentially, uh, there, were, there were misconceptions about, oh, can I do it? I, I'll try and do it really quickly. Um, the, if you think about the central point of Bretton Woods, it is that the dollar is going to become the linchpin of the global economic system. Um, and so there, there have been lots of historians who've gone back and looked at Bretton Woods and thought, well, this was all part of a kind of conspiracy by the Americans to install themselves in there. It kind of makes sense. It goes with the narrative. And they looked at a few kind of different bits of evidence that seemed to suggest that was the case. First of all, the, the Americans, this, this is the sequence as the conventional wisdom goes. Uh, the Americans um, inserted this phrase, gold convertible currency, into the articles, basically saying that at the very centre of the system, you want a gold convertible currency. But everyone was like, oh, this is very vague. What does it actually mean, gold convertible currency? Uh, then, Harry Dexter White, number two, uh, said in one of his meetings that the morning of this critical moment that I'm going to tell you about. So, this is the moment where we either uh, fish or cut bait on most of these things. So, everyone thought, well, that means that he was planning something, something fishy. Um, and then, at this very meeting, um, this same day, this phrase, gold convertible, is converted into gold and US dollars. Voila! The dollar is at the centre of the world's economic system. Um, and then the changes were implemented in late-night drafting sessions. That's the conventional wisdom about this, this uh, illicit plan by the Americans to install the dollar uh, at the centre of the world economy. The reality, though, is if you kind of go back... Uh, 
If you go back and look at what actually happened, it is a little less clear that this American plan. For one thing, that phrase gold convertible had been in the draft articles for months. For another thing, that vagueness I was talking about, gold convertible, what does it mean? Well, that was actually, you know, in some ways part of the American plan. Um, Keynes hated this. He hated all of this legal jargon. He always used to kind of moan about why are you putting all of this terrible jargon in there? He hated lawyers. Um, he said he called he called the language Cherokee, um, and you know why not insult another kind of ethnic minority while he's at it? Um, he called it Cherokee and and essentially said you need to change it and put something kind of clearer in there. Um, Bernstein, who was uh, Harry Dexter White's assistant, was very pleased that he kept what he said kept the Cherokee, it stayed in Cherokee uh, in there, and. That's, that's important, as I'll explain in a moment. He wanted to keep it vague. In other words, they didn't necessarily want to exchange this thing, gold convertible, for uh, the US dollar. Then in this very meeting, an Indian raised the matter, not an American. The Indians, that's significant, the Indians uh, were owed billions of pounds by the British and were desperate to try and allow currencies to flow more freely around the world. So the British, a Briton, there's actually a guy called Dennis Robertson, a great Cambridge economist, uh, a Briton was the man who suggested inserting the dollar in there. In other words, it was a British person who officially kind of put the, the dollar, the US dollar, at the centre of the world's monetary system. And then he kept pushing for it uh, throughout the night. And White was never really that close to this issue. So the point there is that you'll hear conspiracy theories about how this system worked uh, and about how there was kind of American plot afoot. But really that wasn't the way uh, that things worked out at Bretton Woods. Things were a lot more complicated than that. So I have just three, three lessons from Bretton Woods, uh, which I will give you. Um, these are, these are obviously slightly, slightly vague, but nonetheless kind of underline some of the discoveries I made when I was kind of going through my book. I mean, first one, I, we've gone through that. The similarities uh, between Keynes and White's positions, they, they were more important than their differences fundamentally. Uh, there, was, there were some differences, but the similarities were more striking. Um, both believed that the correct response to this crisis was to create institutions, international institutions, to prevent there ever being a Great Depression again. Um, and that's why we have the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Both of them wanted fixed exchange rates. Both wanted to control capital flows between countries. Second of all, the conference was a lot more chaotic than is often remembered. It was hardly this kind of well-ordered event that you'll see it described as in textbooks. The perfect economic conference was nothing of the sort. It was, it was incredibly chaotic. Uh, and certain reforms, for instance, the dollar thing, which I've just sped through, um, they were unexpectedly imposed and they happened in kind of chaotic, uh, in a chaotic way. Third, the success of Bretton Woods was in part down to what we just talked about there, the vagueness Cherokee, intentional vagueness, whatever you want to call it, it meant that when the system had problems in the following years, as it would do, it could adapt. And of course that was necessary. Bretton Woods system was in place from the late 1940s to the early 70s. By then the US had gone from being a balance of payments surplus nation to being a deficit nation thanks to the Vietnam War and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society reforms. Now that shift was a big problem for the system because it hinged on the US being able to convert dollars into gold at a fixed price, $35 an ounce. Now, with a deficit, its ability to do that came under question. So eventually in 1971, Richard Nixon closed the gold window and the system came to an end. Um, and that's kind of where I started in a sense, which is where a lot of those metrics showing kind of pressures upon the financial system really started to rise. Um, but in part because of the vagueness of the Bretton Woods agreements, and they are incredibly vague, they're incredibly wordy, you can go in there and look through the agreements and you'll still find kind of fossilised remnants of some of the arguments that were had at the Mount Washington Hotel um, that are totally irrelevant to the modern economy. Um, and yet we still have an IMF uh, and a World Bank today, which is something that the Eurozone, I'm sure, are mightily relieved about. Um, do I have time finally for one more? Very quickly. Lessons from the recent financial crisis. Now, I, I appreciate this is a bit of a jump from past to present, but I'm going to end just quickly with a couple more lessons, uh, three more lessons, uh, with these recent years, which in some way are kind of inspired by Bretton Woods. Now, first, it's far easier, number one, it's far easier to take big decisions during a crisis. Now, back in the autumn of 2008, actually, I remember the IMF throwing away the normal kind of turgid communique that it issued at these events uh, and just published a statement of a few paragraphs long, which just pledged 
we will stand behind our banking systems. G20 summit the following year did the same thing. In the teeth of a crisis, actually sometimes policy making is a lot easier than during kind of chronic weakness. And that's this second point. International institutions, the IMF included, and we had it this week, I kind of mentioned that at the start, tend to do less well in the face of chronic weakness, actually combating that. And finally, this point that, that I think does concern me is that we're living through a long-term secular decline of internationalism. Um, for most of history, save for the 1930s, economic policy was carried out with an eye towards global conditions. Uh, during the gold standard, central bankers, they set monetary policy uh, in order to main ex- ex- maintain exchange rates at the same level. Domestic concerns were essentially suppressed, for better or for worse, often for worse. Similar story during Bretton Woods, uh, half an eye was kept on monetary policy. Um, and since the 1970s, we've been living in a very different world. It's very different to any of those previous worlds. One where the priority has been domestic rather than international concerns. Uh, and that might be a cyclical shift, it might be a secular shift. Um, but it concerns me, and it concerns me just because of this chart, which I'll finish with, which is the gloomy chart, sorry. Um, <laughs> but since 1970, uh, early 1970s, this shows you essentially kind of financial cycles. The blue line is, is financial cycles. There's a Bank for International Settlements chart of a guy called Claudio Borio uh, wrote a paper recently. And essentially you can see they just get bigger and bigger until this is the financial crisis we've just lived through before. That was the crisis of the early 90s. The worry is, unless we do something to reform our monetary system, does that then turn into an even bigger kind of sign curve? Is it a sign curve? There we are. Now I know. (laughs) Um, But it'll turn into an even bigger sign curve, and there you are facing the prospect of an even greater crisis in the future. So that's the the whistle-stop tour of concerns about where we are now. Um, and I think that's, that's where I'll end. I'll end with that. That's, that's the book, by the way. <laughs> All good bookstores. Thank um, you very much, Ed. Thank you. Now, we have time for some questions. So if you would like to ask a question, please put your hand up. We have microphones. Um, I'll point to you. If you just want to briefly introduce yourself for the purposes of everybody else, we'll start with the gentleman there. Donald Davidson. I just want to you what you referred to. The most extraordinary aspect is, of course, uh, the fact that you know Harry Dexter White, as I understand, uh, was a, along with, of course, uh, Alger Hiss, who was, uh, who was at Yelta. Uh, again, another basically was 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 a Soviet agent. Uh, it's just uh, one of the extraordinary, amazing things. I just want you, if you could expand on, the, on yeah. what I think is an incredible, amazing point. Yeah. Do we do it answer that, or do you want yeah, to? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, no, I agree. It's, it's an extraordinary story, and I kind of I, I, I zipped past it very quickly uh, due to time concerns. But one could, you know, have a, a whole lecture about that. Um, I think certainly there were there was evidence that Harry Dexter White had, uh, in some way, been passing information to the Soviets. There's less evidence to suggest that that necessarily had deleterious effects on the agreement, or indeed that that affected the way that it eventually evolved. But what I think what is interesting certainly is the involvement of the Soviets at this stage. You know, this 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 was a, a rare opportunity to see how before the Cold War and it's an interesting analogy actually, the moment really that the Cold War is commonly conceived to have begun. It's the kind of George Kennan sending his long telegram uh, back to Moscow, uh, back to Washington from Moscow, was partly a response to the Soviets not signing up to Bretton Woods. And Harry Dexter White was desperate to keep them as involved as they possibly could be. And in order to do that, perhaps he may have gone a bit further in terms of personal diplomacy, uh, in terms of what might look, might have looked like espionage, uh, to do so. Um, but it's one of those mysteries that I think will potentially remain a mystery. Uh, for, for many years to come, about just how much influence those those dealings actually had. Thank you, gentlemen here. Thank you very much. I've actually been to Bretton Woods. There is a permanent exhibition there, uh, where they have the pictures of all the people who took part in that conference. And um, the question I have is, um, how far do you think the uh, agreements uh, you did cover that have uh, related to the condition of international finance today. You did indicate, I wasn't too 
I wasn't agreeing. You said that globalization is less than it was then. I would have thought it might be the opposite, but if you could enlighten me about that. I mean, Keynes, Keynes, when he wrote The Economic Consequences of the Peace, described this glorious age that had come to an end in 1914 of of globalization. It's remarkable just how much that sounds like the era that we're living through at the moment. You know, vast kind of movements of capital around the world, trade, you could, you could sit, essentially you said you could, you could lie in your bed uh, and order anything you wanted from around the world. And this was, you know, 1914. Um, I think that, you know, to, to take that, that issue, I think definitely in terms of flows of capital, we're in, a, in a, an unprecedented era. And I think that there is a difference between where we were then. And I think that one of the issues that, that I don't... I've, I've just rarely seen this properly attacked or approached is the question of just, you know, to what extent um, the removal of capital controls in 19, you know, the early 1970s uh, has had damaging effect on the global financial stability. I just haven't seen decent kind of research on, on that. And I think that we need to kind of think a, a bit more about that because I don't know if there are any kind of definitive answers on that. Okay. Thank you. We have another question over on the side here. Yes, hello. My name is Frederick. I'm a postgraduate student here at the LSE. Um, my question was, in, in the beginning of your lecture, you uh, mentioned the kind of inefficient decision-making process we have internationally now, and uh, I can only agree after having been in some of the rooms in the Council uh, of the European Union in Brussels. Uh, but could you expand when you said that it, it's easier in crises, and I mean that's, mm. I guess, conventional wisdom, but you cannot induce crises just to get decisions made. No. So <laughs> is there anything we can learn from the modalities uh, of negotiations and decision-making at the Bretton Woods? Is it just a moon, ro- moon room and a Peruvian mm. dancer that's needed for, <laughs> for the system to become more efficient, or yeah. what were the particularities? They, that- need, they need a bigger bar at the, at the commission, you know, the Justice Lipsis <laughs> building in Brussels. Um, I, uh, part, part of the reason that, that you know, they were able to make this you know, quite momentous change is because the world was at war and the tension, a lot of tension was elsewhere. Um, part of the reason, I think, was that um, it really was quite bilateral in the end. And you'll probably know this from your experience, but the more people you have in that room wanting to have a say, the more difficult it becomes to try and get anything done. I mean, we're seeing that at the moment. I think you see it in Europe um, but since the expansion uh, of the EU. You see it with the G7, which has become the G20, and now it's quite unwieldy and quite difficult to get decisions made. But back then in 1944, it really it was primarily, genuinely, US and UK with some bits on top from other countries. I think that that, that was the, you know, the dominant reason why they were able to do it. And even on that basis it was basically the US. And it was the US with a few, a few concessions to, to the UK, but actually not many um, that, that meant that it could get involved. So it was, it was that you know, hegemonic thing. When you have a kind of... There's, it's this theory of hegemonic stability, which I'm kind of quite drawn to, that says that when you have a global you know, hegemon, then you might have a bit more stability because there is actually kind of leadership. Um, and certainly in that case... I think the position of America had never been greater in comparison to all of the others. Thank you. Norman in the upper middle. Yeah. My name is Irmi Seidel. I'm normally located in Switzerland. So uh, two, thank you for your interesting presentation. Two things. The first is, um, don't you think as well that, that the growth period which we had after the Second World War up to the 70s is not, uh, might have more important reasons than Britain Woods, I think, of the recovery, yeah. cheap energy prices and things like yeah. this? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. I think, I think uh, to put it down just to the international monetary system is, is obviously nonsense. I mean, okay. the, Sorry. And then I have a second point. Okay, okay please. Okay, the second is, um, you didn't actually, there was, I think, already at that time, this economist called Robert Triffin. And he said that a system like that in Britain Woods would not work because the United States would have to in- get highly indebted. So actually, you presented Britain Woods as a successful story. But it, if Triffin is right, it cannot work like this. Um, yeah, and he was, and he was right uh, to the extent that 
you know, the US basically, there was a shortage of dollars throughout that kind of post-war period, essentially. And the US needed, in order to keep the system going, this is the kind of Triffin dilemma, it needed to pump out more dollars in shorthand, essentially kind of build up its deficit. Uh, and the system uh, essentially didn't find kind of stability in due course. Whether, whether that was inevitable or whether that was just a consequence of post-war uh, the fact that there were still so many damaged economies elsewhere around the world and that essentially the US was you know, the only powerhouse. I don't really know, and I don't know whether you could impose something like this today in a far more kind of multipolar world and not necessarily have the sheer reliance on one country. But it comes back to that question of why was the dollar in the very centre of this? Having the dollar in the very centre of it made that Triffin dilemma even more inevitable that it could lead to a collapse. And so if you didn't have that, if you had some kind of an international currency, then that might have been one solution. Gentleman in the pink shirt. <coughs> William Ralph. Um, I'm an ex-nuclear engineer. I've spent a whole career in industry. Uh, but I am interested in economics uh, to a degree. Um, and certainly in growth. Um, growth always interests me because I don't actually know really what it is. Um, but the, my question generally is... Do you think that there is a limit to growth? Oh, okay. Um, Thank you. Well, I think we're, we're pretty good at finding new things to spend money on, which is kind of, you know, it, in essence, I mean, Keynes thought back in, I can't remember when he wrote uh, Economic poss- Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, um, but this was kind of in the 20s or the 30s. Yeah. I think the 30s, wasn't it? Yeah. So he, he said that, you know, by come uh, within 100 years... We'd all be earning so much that we'd only need to work something like kind of 15, 16 hours a week because we'd, our incomes would be proportionally greater, but the quantity of things that we'd actually want to spend money on would kind of remain more or less the same. And instead, what's happened is through various kind of, you know, uh, consumerism, whatever, you know, marketing, whatever you want to call it, we've become pretty good at finding new products and services to spend money on. And so I, I suspect we will continue to, to find ways of, of, of generating what we call growth uh, and generating extra in- income as well. Okay, question on the side. Hi, um, thank you for such a good talk. Uh, with the dollar becoming the central currency, does that not make democracy in other countries uh, almost unachievable because of the stranglehold America can hold? It's an interesting, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I think that part of the you know, part of what has landed the, the fund in particular, but also the World Bank to an extent in trouble over the course of the past kind of 20, 30 years, is that they did have a kind of undue influence over the economic policies, you know, of various countries around the world. The Washington Consensus is what it's kind of commonly called. And during the Asian crisis, they, you know, were widely seen to have imposed policy, policies which weren't necessarily particularly healthy, well, the opposite, really, for certain Asian countries, um, to the extent, really, that a lot of them have now decided that they, the last thing they want to do now is go back to the IMF and are creating their own bank, the BRICS Bank, um, and also a kind of a system similar to the IMF. So the BRICS Bank is like the, 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 um, the World Bank, and then they've got a reserve uh, system as well. The ironic thing is, and I think this is still right, is that when they came to denominate their balance sheet... They did it in dollars, even the BRICS bank. So the mere, I think the, the issue is more influence of you know, Washington policymakers on how you reform your economy, which I think is, can, you know, can be quite independent to currency, um, which is why the BRICS bank has gone for the dollar. Question over on the side. Hi. Um, yeah, you talked about sort of the corridors of power in place at the summit. So sort of these meetings that took place, and it is, does have. I mean, your title is "Fought Behind Closed Doors," so it's an impression of sort of a very specific group of people coming together, sort of very like-minded and having these discussions. Do you think that that was a key part of the success of this sort of particular type of summit diplomacy, and that nowadays these kind of closed-door discussions, these corridors of power, because uh, it's sort of a more open world, because of sort of the increase in the sort of role of the media, the free media and things, that this kind of possibility of sort of corridors and power kind of summits, Mm. that's been taken away? Or do you think that still is very much an aspect of how sort of the 
top financial decisions are made. Yeah, I think it would be really difficult to do anything like this today, you know, in the era of Twitter and, you know, 24-hour news. Um, having said that, what's remarkable, actually, looking back at this period at the kind of news reports, is how much of it was quite well reported. There were a lot of newspaper articles, and there's, and there's lots of kind of diary stories about, um, you know, who got the best golf score and stuff like that. So... Some of it did kind of find its way out, and I think the inevitable truth is that when it comes to international monetary affairs, people are not always quite as interested in that as they are in basically everything else. Um, so, you know, apart from me, uh, I guess. Um, and so even though there was a lot of this stuff within the newspapers, um, and there was journalists were given amazing access, amazing access at the conference. They were allowed to walk, you know, in all of these areas that nowadays, if you've ever gone to one of these conferences, would be prohibited for journalists. Usually, and I'd say this as one, we're we're shunted off in some tent, you know, like a few miles from the actual debating, the actual kind of conference, literally. And we we have to watch the whole thing on television screens. And occasionally they'll bus in, you know, Obama or Cameron or whoever to give a press conference and then very quickly they leave. Um, whereas these people could, you know, journalists at Bretton Woods could just walk amongst all of the delegates, could just chat to them all the time. And they had kind of unparalleled levels of access. So in some ways, there was more access. But I think there was also definitely a kind of like, you know, like-mindedness that meant that con- you know, unconventional views weren't necessarily heard quite as much as they might have otherwise been. OK, and one last question. <laughs> Thank you very much again. Um, just referring to my earlier question, um, is, this, is that not a very good definition or, or a key indicator into whether a country is actually an empire rather than just an independent country? Which, which, which uh, is what a definition? America uh, being the fact that it is so powerful with their money the centralisation of the money. Is that an indicator oh, of an should, empire? You shouldn't go calling America an empire. It's not, they, they, don't, they don't like that at all. Um, <laughs> but no, I think it's, 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 it's a legitimate question. Certainly the influence wielded by you know, the US over the course of the last 50 years has been, you know, extremely, has been felt kind of quite widely. And I think a lot of people have that complaint that it has been done not directly but through its influence at the International Monetary Fund, which it has a lot of influence at, it has the Deputy Managing Director permanently, which in turn then imp- asks different countries around the world to impose certain policies, and the same with the World Bank as well. OK, we've... We... All right, one last question. I will, I will allow this, because... So, did the young man in there... This would better be good now. The burden is on. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Not a pressure. Um, thank you. It seems like quite um, rational, like in 1942, to have the dollar as the main currency for, for those kinds of policymakers. But, you know, as we, today we live in a far more multipolar world, and, and you read that countries like China and uh, some Arab policymakers are trying to challenge the predominance of the dollar, denominating uh, transactions like oil. And I was wondering, from your perspective, is it inevitable that the dollar will end up stop being this... Uh, world-denominated currency, or will it keep going indefinitely, or you know, what? That is a good question. Okay. Um, how much time have we got? Not much. <laughs> I mean, it's it's that that is you know the sixty-four million dollar renminbi <laughs> euro question. Um, clearly, it can't remain the undisputed global currency um, forever. It, I mean, it just can't be the case. Um, however, we've been talking, you know, we've been talking and writing about the death of the dollar really for quite a long time, and it hasn't quite happened yet. And even the euro, which is now this, you know, this this other big international currency, still hasn't quite taken off for various reasons. Some of us, you know, we're quite experienced with what's gone wrong there, but it hasn't quite taken off as well. Um, the renminbi hasn't been fully liberalised yet, the uh, the Chinese currency, but definitely. I have no idea, and I think that's going to be the interesting story that we see over the course of the next kind of 50 years, is how do we deal with that? And how do we ensure that the world can actually remain stable while having so many different superpowers kind of vying for, for authority? That's, that, ha- that hasn't happened all that often in history, and, t- and it tends to be when the dominant superpower is challenged, 
things don't go so well at that stage. That's when you start getting wars and things. So, you know, touch wood, we don't see anything like that. But nonetheless, that's why we're at a very interesting point in history right now. Thank you. And thank you all for your questions. Can I ask you to join with me in thanking Ed for his lecture tonight? <laughs> <laughs>